glad to be with you, and uh, it's so good to see everyone uh, here. And uh, I want to preach today under this title, <clears throat> Stay Salty, Stay Salty. And, uh, you know, I, I, I am uh, I'm looking forward to, and I've said this a few times in life, that I am looking forward to the day when I can be that salty old man. When I can be that, that man who has enough age on him and years that he can just about get away with saying all the stuff you've been thinking you want to say, but you've held back because you know it wouldn't be received. Whereas as an older man, older person, you start to think, you know what? It doesn't matter if they receive it or not. I'm just going to let it go. And they could just say, oh, he's old and salty. And I'm looking forward to the day that I can be that salty old man. And uh, you think about that statement sometimes. that Talk about a person who comes into a room, comes into a situation or a conversation, and they have a way of impacting the area, right? Well, he's pretty salty. She's pretty salty. It means that people take notice that they've arrived or that they're there or that they had an opinion. And uh, while we use that term to be something kind of can a little bit, it's, it's never really received or seen as a compliment, uh, I can say for certainty that in my life uh, I want to become that salty old man and I think in some ways I should be salty now. And so I want to preach to you this title, Stay Salty, and uh, today I'm preaching to us as a church body, and I'm preaching to us as Christians and as believers, and I want to start this sermon with reading some scripture. We're going to go to Mark chapter 9, verse 49 through 50. If you have your Bibles, you can pull them out, you can mark this scripture, Um, you may even want to take some notes. Jesus said, for everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good. Say salt is good. But if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Say salt is good. But flavorless salt is bad. He says, have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Notice what he says. Everyone will be seasoned with fire. Every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, that's a bad thing. Elsewhere, Matthew 5 and 13, another recording of the same uh, statements. Jesus said, you, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So in this one, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Look at someone next to you and say, you're the salt. But if the salt loses its flavor, it is then good for nothing but to be thrown out. Look at them and say, don't get thrown out. 
Luke 14, 34 through 35, he, it's written down a little bit stronger. It says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And anytime you see this statement in Scripture, him who has ears to hear, let him hear, it's meaning pay attention, listen to what I'm saying. The dung hill was the place, was the dump of the city. It was a place where they would take their trash and uh, even their sewage. That's why it was called the dung hill. It was a place where all of the refuse of the city would wind up. And if salt had lost its flavor, had lost its savor, had lost the thing that made it unique to itself, it was not fit for the land. It wasn't fit for the dunghill. It wasn't fit to do anything with. It would just be discarded. There was no reason to use it in any application because it had lost the thing that made it unique. If we are the salt and there is a danger of losing our flavor, then clearly we need to understand what is Jesus trying to communicate to us. And I ask the question, how can salt lose its flavor? Does salt ever go bad? Does it spoil after a year or maybe it's two years or five years or ten years? What, what about a hundred years? When does salt become ineffective? Did you know that salt never loses its potency? It never goes bad. You can take salt and if you took it today when you got home and you set it aside on the shelf, it doesn't matter if it were one year from now or 100 years from now. If you reached for that salt and you pulled it off and you decided to salt some food with it, it would still just be as effective today uh, or then as it is today. It would still have the thing that makes it what it is. And so it's kind of confusing. What is Jesus trying to say? If salt never spoils and salt never goes bad, how is it that salt can lose its flavor? What is his warning to us if salt by itself can never lose the flavor in and of itself? It's interesting because archaeologists have found in crusaders' bags and uh, military people's bags that they've dug up, they found salt, and the salt was still salt. They went into Egypt tombs and salt was a popular thing there to be used and put inside the tombs. And guess what? The salt was still salt. It was still powerful. It was still doing what it was supposed to do. It could still be used today because salt is never supposed to lose the thing that makes it salt. Maybe, maybe Jesus was confused when he was speaking to these people and saying, what if salt loses its flavor? Maybe he thought those people were too ignorant to understand what he was trying to communicate. Maybe he, he thought that they just wouldn't know and understand that salt stays powerful throughout its entire existence. So why would Jesus intentionally choose to use salt as an example? Knowing that salt can never lose the flavor that he is talking about. There are two things, two ways the effectiveness of salt will be diminished. The first is when salt is taken and it's watered down. 
The second is when salt is taken and it's mixed with a foreign element. Salt loses its effectiveness when it becomes watered down or when it's mixed too heavily with a foreign element. And so if you have ever asked the question, why is the church not as effective today as what I see in Scripture? We only have ourselves, the church, to blame. Because we allow ourselves to become so watered down and so mixed over with elements that God never intended His church to allow in. We allow things like sin in our life. We allow carnality and flesh to rule. We allow the world to infect us with what the world is doing. And so we have only ourselves to look in the mirror and say, this is why it's not being effective. It's because I've allowed some things to mix into my life that God has never intended should be there. That's what impacts salt. If you are the salt, Look at it in Romans 8 and 6. He says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Carnality is the flesh. It's allowing the flesh to rule our spirits and guide everything. We are called to be different and distinct, to be a new creature in Christ and to separate ourselves from the world and from sin and from carnality. And yes, it is a lifetime endeavor that we pursue, but it's worth pursuing. It is something that we're called to. The world can diminish the power that God has put inside of us. And I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about the thing that it will make us powerless Christians. I get this question all the time when I'm teaching people a Bible study. How come we don't see all of the things that they were doing? If Jesus said greater things than these you will do when he talked about the miracles, why is it that we don't see that in Christianity at large? It's a common question with people. You've probably heard that yourself maybe whenever you were in a position to be defending your faith or to be talking about faith with someone, they'd say, well, you know, I just, the church. The second thing is the world. Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 17, we are warned, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. He's not saying that you should ignore unbelievers, that you should not extend your hand to them and pull them towards salvation. As a matter of fact, you study Scripture, it's quite the opposite. But what he's saying is you don't be so linked up that they're guiding you because a yoke was a thing you put across two oxen. And when two oxen would plow together, they assisted one another, but the stronger ox was the one you wanted to control because whenever that ox would move, the weaker ox would be the one that would follow. And so he's saying don't be unequally yoked. Don't be yoked together with something that is going to pull you in a wrong direction, that's going to influence you negatively. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. He was not saying, take my weight and my work and the heaviness upon you. What he was saying is, you get linked up to me and I can make a straight plow. You hook into me, I'm way stronger than you are. And if you'll walk with me, if you'll be side by side with me, if you'll be with me in my yoke, then I can take you to the end. That's what he was saying. 
The warning is, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what apart has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. Notice what he's saying. He's saying there's some things in this world that you're going to have to put out of your life. There are some things in this world that you're going to have to eliminate. There are some things that I'm going to call you to sacrifice. Listen, a church, a Christian that is watered down, cannot make an impact in the world. Children of God who mix the world into their life and just allow it to stay with us and allow a carnality to reign in us or give place to sin, we will never be effective and we will never see what He has called us to see and inhabit in our promises. Salt is a powerful commodity. Jesus knew what he was doing when he chose salt. He knew what he was talking about because salt typifies what his people should be. And it typifies more than that. But you think about salt. Salt is one of the elements that is necessary for life. Without a sufficient supply of salt in our diet, we would end up dying. We have to have some salt. The same way, if you eat too much salt, it will kill you. But we have to have salt. Even on our tongues, our bodies are created that there's uh, salt on our tongue and a place for salt on our tongue that we can sense it. That's why you can talk, you can bite into food. And I'm not a person who loves to salt my food. You're not going to see me grabbing the salt shaker and putting it on most meals. I'm not a heavy salt fan. You'll never see me eating salt and vinegar chips. It's not going to happen. I don't even like salted caramel. That's how much I don't care for salt. But I recognize I do have to have salt in my diet. I have to have some of those things because salt is necessary for life. The second thing salt does, salt preserves. Throughout generations, it's been used as a preservative because of the power of salt. Salt is also flavorful, and it enhances the other flavors around it. Uh, Whenever you take and you mix salt into a meal, that's what it's doing. It's pulling other flavors out and enhancing them. Salt finally has healing properties. Salt has been used in applied medicine for a long time. There's salt used to heal. We need the people of God in our lives. We need one another. The person across from you, you need them in your life because there's a preservation there. There's something that keep you alive. There's something that will bring flavor to your life. There's something that will heal you when you need healing. That's why the Lord said, bear one another's burdens. He wasn't just saying it just to say it. He was saying whenever you walk together, when one another yoke up together, when you draw strength from one another there's something that happens and so I reject the idea that you don't need the church and you don't need people that is foreign to the word of God you have to have the people of God in your life you nor I are strong enough to walk alone 
We're just not. We weren't meant to. So all of the powerful things that salt can do, how is it? Water. Or a little infiltration, infiltration of a foreign object can slowly void the power of that salt. God, God's grace will not embrace the truth of His Word being watered down. I want you to understand that. God's grace and His grace is amazing. But the grace of God will not embrace His truth being watered down. I can't water this down. I can't make it weaker. I can't make it more palatable for anyone. All I can do is encourage everyone to follow the Word of God. Because God's grace will not embrace what I decide to make His Word be about. So I have to be extra certain, and you need to be extra certain, that whenever I preach, that what I am preaching in this Word is exactly what He intended for this Word to be. Because it doesn't matter, you won't get to heaven or or you won't get to judgment day and look at him and say, well, you know, my pastor had it wrong, but because God's grace will not embrace his truth being watered down and being perverted and twisted. It will not only reject that, but it will reject his grace will not embrace taking a bride that is unpure. Because he calls us to purity. What do I mean by that? Do I mean that we have to eliminate and do away with everything in our life? That if we stumble and we fall, we should quit and give up. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is when you fall, you have to take the spiritual step to get up again in God's grace and walk with Him. But it will not embrace a bride that is embracing all of the impurities that the world is trying to bring to us. And you know what I'm talking about. There are things in this world that all of the world wants us to accept and just be okay with. God does not work that way. God's Word is forever settled in heaven and it will not pass away. His word is finite. It is not going to end. It is settled. And so you, like me, we want pure truth. And we want our lives to be purposefully clear of what God will reject. We want to be clear of all of the things He's going to reject. And instead, we want to grab a hold of all of the things that He wants for us to have. And so with that purpose in mind, I am pursuing the rest of this message. And I want to talk to you specifically today about the altar. Because Jesus knew what He was doing when He said, We are the salt of the earth. He knew what He was saying whenever He said, Salt that becomes flavorless is powerless. And I want to talk to you about how not to become powerless. What do I need to do in my life so that my life does not become the flavorless salt that Jesus warned me about? First thing is that don't water anything down. 
Whenever you're faced with something in the Word of God and it's difficult to swallow, and there can be, there are things that, that I get to and I'm just like, oh, I have to take a breath because it's the Word of God. God, if I, if I preach it that harshly, if I say it like Paul did, people might reject that. I can't afford to water it down. You can't afford to water it down. The second thing is don't allow foreign mixtures to come into your life. Recognize when the Spirit of God is leading you to eliminate something from your life. And I've yet to walk with the Lord that He hasn't called me to account on some things and say, you know, this is not helping your spiritual life. You need to remove it. You need to get it out. It's not about going to heaven and hell. It's about wisdom in walking with God and having the power that He wants me to have in my relationship with Him and in the ministry that we have with other people. And every one of us are called to have that ministry. Ephesians 4 and 11 says, He gave some apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, pastors he's not saying that they gave them for the ministry instead you go to the next verse and it says for the perfecting of the saints to do the ministry of God you're a minister just as much as I you're called to impact the people in your workplace you're called to make an impact and make a change people should come in contact with us and walk away and say my goodness they're salty Look at the person across from you and say, stay salty. Stay salty. The answer to staying salty is illustrated in God's covenant. God made a covenant with Israel in the Old Testament and God has offered to us a covenant in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, you ever wondered what testament means? It means covenant. Old covenant, new covenant. All of Hebrews is written about the Old Covenant becoming the New Covenant. It's a very interesting thing. Study that out sometimes. Study the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Can't understand the New Covenant if you don't fully understand the Old Covenant. He gave a covenant. A covenant is an agreement. It's a contract. If you've ever signed a contract, you've signed a contract on a home or you've signed a contract on a vehicle, you are entering into a legal binding thing. And the contract states what both parties are going to do toward one another. For instance, if I uh, go and buy a car and I borrow to buy that car, the contract I enter into says that I'm going to make my payment until I pay off the car, and because I'll do that, they'll give me the car now. When I quit paying it, I'll walk out one day and the car's gone. You enter into a contract to buy a home. It's the same thing. Under a contract on a home, the seller says, I will sell the home to the buyer in this condition and lays out all of the conditions of purchasing the home. And the buyer agrees to secure financing. And if the financing comes through, they will pay the seller for the home in this condition. And it's all laid out very detailed. That's why whenever you go to sign those papers, it's like, Sign, sign, and you just keep going. You're there for an hour signing stuff. The thing that binds a contract, we have the law system, a legal system that we can take and we can uh, be sued or sue someone to try and enforce the contract. 
But the thing that bound a contract together, there's only one thing. If you void the law, there's only one thing, and that is loyalty. Loyalty to the word of the contract or loyalty to the opposite party. God's loyalty is to his word and his loyalty is to his people. And as long as we apply in our lives the contract set forth before us, that we enter into a covenant with him, we live in covenant with him, God's loyalty to his word and to us should never be questioned. It is without question. His loyalty is perfect. His ways are perfect. His righteousness is perfect. Repeatedly, God told Israel, if you'll keep my commandments, if you'll keep my covenant, if you'll obey my law, if you'll obey my words, if you'll do as I instruct, then this is going to happen. And he gave them a promise beyond just the promised land. He gave them multiple promises of what he would do. Exodus 19 and 5 records, he said, Now therefore, if you will indeed be obey my voice, keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me. Me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Multiple places in Scripture he told them, if you'll stay in covenant with me, if you'll keep these commandments, if you'll keep my word, if you'll obey. And it's the same thing he has for us. If you'll obey my word, if you'll do what I'm asking you to do, if you'll enter into the covenant, the agreement with me, I've got blessings, I've got promises, I've got things that I want to do in your life. And it's amazing the things that God offers to us in covenant. And listen, there is no way that you can afford to pay for all of the things that he offers in a contract. There's no way that you could afford to work enough to make it worth getting what he's giving. You can't work. There's not enough to pay. He already paid the price. He paid it in blood and he purchased in full all of the sins of the world. Now that doesn't mean that the whole world's going to be saved at one time. What that means is that everyone through Jesus Christ has the opportunity to enter into contract, into covenant with God. So he says, if you'll keep my covenant, if you'll be my people, I will treasure you. You'll be a special people. Paul said a peculiar people. Be priests and kings in the kingdom of God. The Leviticus, the book of Leviticus gives us the details of the Old Testament covenant. In this book, God gives the details of the priest's duties. He talks about the people's approach in worshiping Him, their responsibility in receiving the blessings that He's laying on the table in front of them. The largest part of the covenant is given to worship. Over two-thirds of everything written in what we refer to as the law is given to the worship of God. And worship was not just this minor thing. We, we think of worship as being this Sunday event, a worship event or a worship service. And when I say we, I'm talking about modern Christianity. We think of it as being just an event we go to that we're involved with on Sunday. No, I can't do that Sunday. I go to worship. But in, the, in Scripture, worship was a daily occurrence. And it heavily, heavily, heavily involved sacrifice. And sacrifices were continuously made daily 
in the temple. Now we know by one sacrifice, he settled it all. But what I want to talk about, I want to talk about that worship. Because sacrifices were continuous and they were daily made in the temple. And every day, a sacrifice was being made on behalf of the people. And individuals themselves would bring their own personal sacrifice. It could be anything from a large animal, bull, a ram. It could be down to just some grain. But they would bring their own sacrifices. Worship was deeply personal. And no one ever went to the house of God without having something they were ready to sacrifice. They didn't just pop in and say hey to the priest and say, you know, I just wondered what was happening today. That didn't happen. They went with an intention to worship God. And each sacrifice had a unique way of being prepared according to the covenant. God said, if you'll do this, if you will do all of these sacrifices according to this process, it'll be received, it'll be honored. I'll respect your offering, but if it's not, it'll be rejected. And we have examples in Scripture where sacrifices were rejected, but we also, there are many, many more untold uh, where it was accepted and it was respected and God received it. But each sacrifice had to be prepared in a certain way. But one of the things, one of the elements of every sacrifice we find in Numbers 18 and 19, the Bible says all of the heave offerings, and heave offering just means a contribution. Any contribution that is brought, any heave offering of the holy things, anything going to be given to God, it says, which the children of Israel offered to the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and daughters with you as an ordinance forever. He says, I'm giving you these things so that you can give it back to me. I'm giving you these things so you can give it back to me. Think on, take that home and chew on that for a while. He says, I'm giving you all of these things, and it's forever in ordinance. And then the next part of the scripture says, It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord with you and your descendants with you. Now, rabbinical theologians believe that this meant every sacrifice had to include salt. Every sacrifice had to be seasoned with some salt. If it was going to go on the altar, it had to be salted. It had to be prepared. There had to be salt involved in the sacrifice. Leviticus 2 and 13 says, Every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. Every Every, every sacrifice had to be salted. They, they spent so much time in using salt and so much energy in using salt that the Lord told them to bring salt without measure. You bring all the offerings you want, but salt, there's no limitation on salt. You bring as much salt as you can. And in the temple, they had a room set aside. It was the chamber of salt. And they would fill that room up with pillars and pillars of salt for the sacrifices that would go on the altar. And so looking and understanding that again, Numbers 18 and 19, he says, All the heave offerings of the holy things which the children of Israel offered to the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and daughters with you as an ordinance forever. It is a covenant of salt. Covenant of salt. 
forever before the Lord with you and your descendants with you. Salt had to be included in every sacrifice. If you and I are the salt of the earth, the salt has to be on the sacrifice. The salt has to be on the altar. Your life and my life must be on the altar at some time. And I'm going to say daily and continually, life is part of the altar. You have to be on the altar with the sacrifice. Look again at Mark 9, 49 through 50. For everyone will be seasoned with fire. Guess what? You're going to get burned in life. And I'll tell you the people that stand up to the fires and the burning in life. It's the people who have burned already on the altar before God. When the Spirit of God is put into your life, those are the people that can sustain themselves when life comes in and tries to tear you apart. Everyone will be seasoned with fire. And that can be now, it can be later, but fire will touch your life but I choose that that fire is going to be on the altar. Every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. You're going to have sacrifices in your life. But I choose my sacrifice. I choose when and where I put it on the altar. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. What he was saying saying the things of this world and the things that try and come into your life and the watering down of the truth of the Word of God, that's going to cause the flavor to leave the salt. But the thing that will sustain the salt is whenever the salt is used for its purpose and it's applied to the sacrifice. Your life is nothing without being tied to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is empty, it is void, it is nothing. And it is nothing without having an altar in your life. You have to die on that altar and you have to choose that you're going to do it. That's how the salt keeps its flavor. That's how the salt keeps its power. That's how the salt stays what it is. It's used for its purpose. And the purpose in the Word of God is to be put on the altar, on the sacrifice. You and I are the salt of the earth. You and I are the salt. We're the thing that makes a difference. But the only way we're going to make a difference in our family, the only way we're going to make a difference in our neighborhood, the only way we're going to make a difference in our city, the only way we'll make a difference in people's lives that we come in contact with is if our life is on the altar attached to a sacrifice salt doesn't have a choice salt must go on the altar with the sacrifice you want a potent spiritual life you want a powerful spiritual life I'm going to tell you where it's found it's found in sacrifice it's found in prayer it's found in an altar It's found when you spend time walking with God and you get closer to Him and the things of this world and this life, the flesh, carnality, sin, you purge it from yourself and allow God to work in you and do the work for you. Luke 17, 33. Jesus said, Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will preserve it. 
Life is found on the altar. The altar will preserve your life. The altar and the sacrifice, they're going to enhance your life. The healing that you need, it's going to be found whenever you put your life on the altar. It's staying on the altar. Romans 12 and 1, Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Here's the terrifying thing. Only I can put my life on the altar with the sacrifice. You can't do it for me. And I can't do it for you. Only you can put your life there. And only you can determine if you're doing exactly what God has called you to do. Because as hard as I might try, I can't know what's going on in your private world. You could spend your entire life next to someone in the same bed and not know the secrets that are going on in their life. Because only you could put your life on the altar with the sacrifice. You say, how? Repentance. Repentance is death to yourself. Not my will. Thy will. It's the will of God at any cost. It's being willing to suffer through the sacrifices that God has for you. It's being willing to live in a trusting state where you put all faith in Him and you just say, God, I don't completely understand, but I will walk this road because you're yoked up with me and I'm going to trust you. How? You have to live your life on the altar. And there are so many promises to being on the altar. He promised His Spirit to us. Not just a powerless, ethereal thought, but an experience. Knowing, without a shadow of a doubt, that your life is being affected by God. He promised deliverance. Not, not just the thought of, yeah, I'm, I'm bound by this addiction, but I'm free in Jesus. I'm struggling, but I'm free. He gave a promise, freedom. When God in his word, when he talked about freedom and he talked about deliverance and he talked about liberty, I don't think it was this, this philosophy. It was real. It was freedom. It was deliverance. It was walking free of the things that so try and weigh us down and bind us and destroy our life. When he talked about healing, he, I, I don't think he was just talking about waffling between feeling those old scars and the things of past life and then occasionally feeling the joy of the Lord saying, I, well, I've still got joy and I'm still being healed. 
he was talking about. If that was the case, then every apostle in every epistle would have written down a loophole to allow themselves to escape through. You know how I know? Because if I were writing it and I wasn't 100% knowing without a shadow of a doubt that what I put into that letter, God would do, I'd put a loophole. They didn't do that. You read through there and every one of those epistles, every word of God, it's amazing how the word of God comes together so succinctly and perfectly and fits just as it should. They don't talk about you could be free from those things. They talk with certainty. They talk with certainty. They're certain that every promise that God has offered and given that God will fulfill, that he will do. Stand with me if you will. I'm I'm communicating to someone today live in a very busy generation. Our time is God's been dealing with me about some things. As the people of God, we've got to find a way to make more time for building the altar in our life. For being the salt on the sacrifice. Listen, it's long and I'm, I'm talking to you because God has been talking to me. As long as the busyness of life and the cares of this life and the flesh and the world and sinfulness and all of the things that come into our life and interact with us, as long as we keep giving that more time than we allow time to be with God and be on the altar of sacrifice and spend time with Him and allow His Spirit to talk to us and lead us and guide us into the things that we should be eliminating from our lives. As long as we do that, we'll stay ineffective. We'll stay powerless. We'll lose the potency God intended for us to have. I wonder if for just a moment we can let the Spirit of God speak to us. Would you open your heart and your mind to the Lord right now? Maybe God has 